Good evening. Welcome to the halfway point. <laughs> the, the turning point, halfway point Dharma talk. Four days in, four days left. See, you guys are doing pretty good. Uh, tonight I'm going to actually talk a lot about this word Dharma. So I really kind of a very Dharma talk. Dharma, Dharma, Dharma. Um, But I first want to speak um, in terms of what's called Dharma transmission, which is a word that maybe you've heard before. Um, What does that mean? A Dharma transmission is a shift of energy in a release in an expansion. It can be psychological, it can be emotional, it can be cognitive, somatic. Uh, and they can be very, very subtle, or they can be quite epic, quite profound. And ultimately what it amounts to is a feeling, a shift in feeling, outlook, and purpose. You just kind of open up to a new possibility, a new way of being a new way of thinking about things. And really what it opens up is courage. We've talked about that some. It opens up a sense of, of, of a willingness to do something else, even if we don't know what that is. Our curiosity and questioning. I'm having a very Vinnie Ferraro moment right now. <laughs> and I'll tell you what that means. There's a, there's a talk that Vinnie did many, many years ago where he talks about being in his... He's talking about how hard it is to open the heart. And he imagines that he's in his apartment by himself and his, the, the whole city streets get surrounded by thousands of Buddhas standing around him, coming, crowding in his house. And they stop and go, we know you're in there. Come out with your heart open. <laughs> <laughs> and as teachers, sometimes we can get in the... Um, business of being very encouraging of our students to, to sit and to practice and be vulnerable and open our hearts and touch into these kinds of things. And then when we have the opportunity to do it, sometimes, but yeah, not so much. <laughs> not so much. So today is actually a very auspicious day for me. I've been using this word a lot. Chris is probably tired of hearing me talk about it. A word you won't hear me use so much. And auspicious is uh, a sign or phenomena that indicates something favorable or prosperous will occur in the future. So you're all welcome. You have a very auspicious day. The weather was auspicious. And for me, it's really auspicious because um, I'll, I'll tell the story more. I've never really told it before. I, this is, today is actually the 30th year anniversary of me being really introduced to this practice. Um, so I've been kind of preparing this for the last couple of months because I, I knew that, that it was going to be on this date. Um, also September 11th is also another date that has some significance, as you showed. Also my wife uh, is burying her father in California right now as we speak. So, and also our friend Joanna Hardy um, is also burying her mom today. And uh, my wife uh, is doing quite well. She, she actually didn't really, it's her biological dad. She didn't know him super well. She didn't meet him until she was about 21. And they've had, a, I would say, not a very close relationship, but still, you know, still hard to be in these experiences. So I want to talk about one of the ways to think about a Dharma transmission, and this is actually canonical, which is quite nice, is is this idea of there being a turning point. Now, we all have turning points in our lives where our life is going a certain way, things are happening, we kind of have a trajectory where we think we're going, where things are happening, and then there's some kind of event. It can be a traumatic event, it can be a joyous event, it can be a subtle event, it doesn't necessarily have to be huge or epic. But 
it's one of these experiences, I'm sure you've had them, where you start to kind of question things a little bit more. Uh, and this is actually really significant. And so, uh, in, the con- in, in the parlance of this turning point, the polytechs conceive of a turning point or a point of crossing over within the path of the process of awakening. Spiritually and psychologically, just this turning point becomes the precise moment and location in which the pull of awakening becomes overwhelming. Although there is not full awakening or final awakening yet, the gravitational pull towards awakening now becomes the most significant force within one's mind. So this way, some of us, whether it's the Dharma or we we kind of become at some point a kind of a bit of a seeker, we might say. And this is actually really true for the Buddha. I think it's really kind of a, a common tale you know, he lived in his society and his time and his place and looked around at the world, at the different spiritual traditions and religious traditions. And he, he kind of surveyed the, 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 the land and, and the world and said, I, nobody's, nobody's offering anything that really seems all that helpful. Maybe you felt this way before. You know? You're just really feeling kind of um, looking for something else. And I think we all get that to some degree. It goes on to say the polytext may not always present the turning point in spiritual development as a formal meditation experience. This is where uh, life off the cushion and a lot of times uh, privileging sitting in meditation posture um, is not always the best because a lot of these insights, a lot of these experiences in our life don't happen when you're sitting on a cushion. They happen in, in different contexts. or even arising from prior spiritual practice. This is interesting. But what, these, but what clearly interests these texts, what they continually turn to, is the precise nature of the mind at that turning point. What kind of a mind is it that produces such a fundamental and far-reaching change of heart? What is so special about it? What is different about it? How is it related to other types of mind? What are the factors that contribute to it? These questions are apparent in the discussion of the gradual path within the early texts. The mind states that the gradual discourse focuses on are a mind that is well, a mind that is open, a mind that is free from hindrances, in a mind that is joyous, in a mind that is content. So it's really talking about, um, it's not so much what happens to us sometimes, but it's the kind of mind state or experience that we're in when these things happen. So I don't have a, a very joyous tale to tell you this evening. Uh, it ends well, or seems to be ending well. <laughs> But, um, so this is, this is like the big turning point for me. This is like, and I've had many since, but this was the one uh, that uh, really um, changed everything. So just, just to give you a, a sense of where my mind was, this is 30 years ago, I'm 18 years old, September 11th, 1993. And I had really had a lot of, um, my teenage years were completely and totally unsatisfying and horrific. I just really felt disillusioned. I was full of hatred. I was full of confusion. And I just really had a, had a bad time of it. And then in, in the early, late 80s, my, my, my father, my family, had, they had a family business which kind of went bankrupt. If anybody remembers the late 80s, it was a rough time for the economy. Uh, and so we had to sell our house and all that stuff that comes with that and move in with my grandparents. So I lived with my mom. I lived with my dad and his mom. And actually, to be honest with you, the best thing that ever happened to me. I wasn't even upset. I was totally happy to get out of it. I was living in southern New Hampshire. And I never paid attention in school. I never liked school. I don't consider myself a very educated person by any stretch. But I did have one teacher uh, my senior year of high school, Peter Stradinsky. 
uh, who um, was a really cool teacher. And he had us read two books for our senior year. He had us read the book The Stranger by Albert Camus, mm-hmm. a book on existential philosophy, which really I, I found to be profoundly liberating. Uh, and the book, um, the Herman Hess book, um, with Siddhartha. I read both those books. And I was really, uh, after graduating high school, I was actually really coming out of this like really dark, deep, like teenage year hell. I was actually starting to become quite happy. Things were going really, really well. I was really, I was like kind of starting to sniff around Buddhism a little bit. I was really into existential philosophy a lot. I was really keen on the idea that life is absurd. <laughs> Very much in line with my experience up to that point. Like this whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. Why anybody would do this, I have no idea. <laughs> and so I really started to come out of it. I was actually working for the environment. I got a job in my senior year of high school working for Greenpeace. And I was working for Greenpeace in Amherst, Massachusetts. And Amherst, Massachusetts is like the, New, the epitome of New England college town. Really, really cool place. And, um, and I was working for Greenpeace and I was going door to door. And I was just, I was super happy. I was really excited. I looked, the future seemed purposeful. I was interested in a lot of things. And I had moved out of my parents' house and was living in different apartments. And I moved in with this, uh, with a friend of mine from Greenpeace and this woman uh, named Carrie Ann, who I was actually, we, we fell in love. Remember when you were fell in love and you were like 19? <laughs> That was some good stuff, right? Just full delusional. Like, it's the best. Right? And so we weren't together very long. Um, you won't laugh when I tell you why. We hadn't known each other that long. We kind of were living together. Um, and it turned out she had this actually really um, serious condition called cystic fibrosis, uh, which she actually probably wasn't even supposed to live as long as she lived. She was 22 or so. And so we were, we were it, was, it was a night, cool New England night. We were walking, we went for a walk down in Northampton by the river where there's all these cornfields. There's these huge cornfields and there's all these dirt roads that you can kind of walk through. So we were walking through the cornfields and we saw a car coming. Uh, and usually you don't see cars out there, it was a bit odd. And we saw a car coming, and we decided to just kind of step off the road and let the car go by. So I was standing here, she was standing next to me, and we were just waiting. And all of a sudden, I looked over, and the car had turned into where we were standing, like maybe 20 feet away from me, and came over and hit me. And I flipped over the car, and it hit her and ran her over. And not only did it run her over, it dragged her body about 500 feet down the dirt road. So I, I... probably was unconscious for minutes or so. Uh, and then I came to, and I realized I was actually, felt pretty okay. I didn't have any broken bones or anything. And I couldn't find her. because I, was like, I couldn't figure out where she was. And then I walked out of the corn into the thing, and I could kind of hear some noise about 500 feet away. And I, and I, and I ran down there, and she was, you know, barely alive. Barely alive. Uh, pretty gory body, just totally kind of like your ultimate worst case scenario. And so talk about a turning point. Um, in that experience, I, uh, I don't remember much except for I was probably in a massive state of shock. But when you work for Greenpeace, they tell you to always carry a pen on you so you can, like a canvasser's kind of religious mantra. And I ran through the fields and ran down and, and got the car to stop that had hit us. And the guy rolled down the window, and it was full of drunk people. And I told the guy what had happened. I said, you know, you just ran us over, and my, you know, my girlfriend's in really bad shape. And the guy, like, totally looked freaked out, rolled up the window and drove away. And I wrote his license plate number down on my hand because I had a pen. So I made my way to the uh, police station. I ran down, flagged down the car, got a ride gave them the license plate number, jumped in a police cruiser, drove like, you know, 112 an hour in the police car. They actually found the guy, we pulled him over and I was able to identify him. Um, and then we went to, went to the hospital soon after that and found out she mostly 
with died pretty much soon after the accident. She didn't suffer a whole lot. By the time the ambulance got there, she was dead. And so at that point, I'd already had lost a sister to a car accident about maybe seven or eight years before, but that was like, that was, that was it. That was it for me. I was totally, could not believe it, totally overwhelmed, totally, I can't even tell you, I don't even remember. It was just so, I was so out of my fucking mind. So out of my mind. And then I remember spending the night at my parents' house, and I, I actually can tell you from that day, September 11th, till about mid-November, I, I think I was probably in a really heightened state of dissociation. I actually can't tell you one thing that happened within those two weeks. I can't, I don't even remember anything that I did. I don't remember if I went back to work or not. I just, it's just actually literally gone from my memory. Vanished. I do remember one thing. I remember I was smart enough, I called, I had a friend named Hanuman, who was a good friend of mine at the time, who was actually Daniel Goleman's son. Um, and he was living in uh, Albuquerque, actually. And I, I went to, I was, I tried to call him one night and he wasn't there and his mom was there. His mom is like, kind of my Dharma mom. She's been like, she sat to go week of retreats in the 70s. She's like been around forever. And I called her, I talked to her for like, what seemed like forever. I don't know, I can't tell you one thing she said, except for she suggested that I go to IMS. and talked to one of her friends who was a Dharma teacher. So we, Hanuman picked me up, he was back at his dad for, it was actually, it was actually right as the three month retreat at IMS was ending. So the, all the Dharma teachers were actually at Joseph Goldstein's house. And so Hanuman was back visiting his dad for Thanksgiving, he picked me up, and then we went and picked up Stephen Smith's daughter at UMass where she was going to college and drove to Joseph's house and smoked like weed the whole way there. I do remember that. And I remember walking into Joseph Goldstein's house and I was so high. And I was like, everybody knows I'm so high. It's like, this, is a, this was a bad idea. I don't want to be here. But everybody was so nice, of course, right? It was Joseph was there and Sharon was there and our mutual teacher Steve Armstrong was there. All the three-month teachers were there, like, I think they were like having a meal and hanging around. And uh, they allowed us to go over to the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is actually wasn't even opened yet. It was a farmhouse, I and the bot, and I spent the night there. And early, early the next morning, very early, it was still dark out, someone was knocking on the door with his, my first teacher, Steve Smith, who actually taught here quite a few times many years ago. Um, and, you know, and at this point, I was really maybe starting to get my faculty together. This is where my memory kind of comes back. I really remember this. Like, I remember the car ride. I remember being in Joseph's house. Something was going on. I was starting to... I actually have very vivid memories of that whole thing. And he came in, and we talked for maybe an hour or two. I actually don't remember what we talked about. I just remember a couple things. I remember it was the first time I felt like an adult was normalizing or validating like what I'd been through in a way that wasn't like, he didn't seem upset or concerned. He didn't seem indifferent. But he, there was a, a huge normalization. Talk about Duca with a capital D where it was just like, I, I just had this really strong sense of like, oh. Like he talked about the wisdom of a turning point when there's suffering, where your heart just gets so blown open that two things can happen. Of course, you can fall into depression and you can fall into despair and you can, you can, can fall into meaninglessness. You can fall into, of course, all kinds of unhelpful places and people, People live their whole lives like this after terrible things. It's tragic. Or, or the heart breaks open into a possibility, into a, uh, a sense of, of a recognition of a shared humanity. And so a wisdom of like, okay, if this is actually how it is here, then maybe, maybe I'm going to rethink how I 
go about my life. Maybe, maybe things, maybe what society and my parents and the world has told me was actually a total lie. And I was already thinking along existential terms anyway, so I was, I was very ready, very ready for this dharmic message. You know, very ready. And, you know, felt really immediately pretty connected to him. I was like, this is my guy. And then he was like, do you want to come learn some meditation? Because he also mentioned that he was a monk and he worked with Mahasi Saira. And um, there were these practices that might be useful. <laughs> and so I met him at the uh, IMS. And inside the Insight Meditation Dharma Hall, there was nobody there. The building was totally empty. And we just sat across from each other, just like this. And... Um, Bring your awareness to breathing. Notice your rise and fall. Notice your mind wander. Come back. And like, I totally in like a moment, just like, everything was different. I totally realized that all this suffering, all this, the world is like this, this the horror show, the Stephen King novel of my life was all just in my head. And it was like, it was just gone. And it was a, I got up and it was like, like I left. There's this puddle of shit on the floor. And the, the, the fact that I take that practice for granted now blows my mind. And so, you know, I, I wasn't all better now. But I remember like leaving and just feeling lighter and just feeling like, God, it was kind of like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> you know, that was like, and, I, and at that point, I, like, I didn't know really like that it was, had anything to do with Buddhism. I didn't know about any of this stuff. I just was like, I met my, you know, Anasuya wanted me to meet her friend at this like weird building in New England. <laughs> that was like all I knew about the whole thing. And then I went and sat a 10 day retreat that summer after that. And that was really, that was 30 years ago, you know, come November, and it was like, you know, I think that we, I'm, I feel very lucky. Um, I don't think, I think I have a very unusual Dharma transmission. It usually isn't like that. But when I track back to that, the, the thing that, that the, the big installation I think that I got, and that is a word that I actually was very reluctant to use until recently, which is the word faith. Or sada in Pali. And so faith, a lot of times I think it's a, maybe a somewhat of a deserved bad reputation because I think we mostly associate faith with religion or religious belief. So I have faith in what it is that I believe in. But Dharma faith, Buddhist faith, is a very different. It's actually classified as a mental state. It's a state, it's a state of mind that stabilizes the mind. It allows the mind to be stable. allows the mind to be optimistic. And it clarifies the mind. Those are the two characteristics of faith as a mind state is it stabilizes and it clarifies. Right. What a nice quality of mind. And it doesn't give me faith in some external situation. It, it gives you this deep, deep internal faith. And maybe just in a very simple way, just a faith that like, you know what, it's okay. It's all okay. I wasn't not sad about what had happened, but I, I got this... I remember just being like, 
I think I might be okay. Like, you know, really kind of like, wow, like I, I thought I was totally fucked for life. And then I was like, I think I might be okay. And, and that, that was like huge because that, that actually was what allowed me to go back to work at Greenpeace. It allowed me to go back into the world. It allowed me to go back into my life with some degree of stability and clarity. I wasn't, you know, the dissociation was gone. I, 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 as far as trauma goes, uh, I, the dissociation was gone and I think to some degree never to return again. But I did pick up this little pesky bugger called hypervigilance. <laughs> Running, getting hit by cars will make you a little bit jumpy. <laughs> you know? And, and I've actually long since kind of quelled that. So, it was it really nice at the time because it was like, there was no, I didn't have any sense of there, like even on the retreats I went on, like, there was a boot up on the thing, but I just didn't make the connection because the two words that I remember hearing, or actually maybe three words, like, and this is in the 90s. So in the 90s at, my, at Insight Meditation Society, if you could sit a 10-day retreat and not hear the word mindfulness once, they didn't, it wasn't really, it was really about insight and vipassana. So I, I would hear the word dharma a lot. I didn't know what it meant at all. But, I, but it, meant, it meant something to me that was deeply profound. Uh, in Vipassana, insight, we would hear that word a lot, and metta. Those were the first words that I really remember starting to, to really resonate with. And I would even go so far as to say, when it comes to faith, like I don't like the word spiritual so much, you'll probably never hear me say it. But in the recent years, I've studied a lot of theologians outside the Buddhist tradition, in particular Paul Tillich. Some of you might be familiar with Paul Tillich. He's probably one of the... Um, really one of the most important and influential theologians of the 20th century. He died in like the late mid-60s. He was a Christian a theologist, uh, but also an existential phenomenologist and was very interested in rethinking Christianity. In fact, a lot of Pali scholars and academics of the Pali canon will use methodologies and hermeneutic strategies that were developed by Paul Tillich because he had all these different tools and all these different ways of interpreting texts to get down to the meat and potatoes of what those texts say. And like, like Stephen Batcher, for example, uses a lot of his, his tools and his strategies. And one thing that, he, that I would say is like, I really feel like if I would describe my relationship to the Dharma, it's very religious. in the sense that religion being that is that in which we're most ultimately concerned about. That's Tillich's definition of religion, is what is your ultimate concern? You know, and it's probably not making sure the cable guy shows up on time. It's probably not making sure, you know, it's not all the stuff that you think it is. So how easy is it to get caught up and frustrated and concerned about shit that really doesn't actually matter? I mean, that's so, it's so, part of the practice for me has just been really trying to live from this deeper place of what is it that I'm most ultimately concerned with? And it's certainly not understanding the ultimate nature of reality, but it's really how can this Dharma experience, how can I use it to navigate my life? How am I going to live? And I think that's really what, what, what the Buddha was after, too. I don't think he really cared so much about the mystical, esoteric, ultimate nature of things, which is kind of a big trap for a lot of Buddhist thinkers. But I think he's much more interested in how you live your life. He's not interested in what you know. He's interested in what you know how to do. This is a know-how practice, not a know-that practice. Because a lot of times we can have all the right answers to all the wrong questions. Right? Knowledge can become kind of a weapon. So, from the horses, now, so what is, what is this Dharma thing? I'm going to talk about that for the rest of the talk. I have, if you look at the uh, Pali Canon, some of the academics, there's actually seven different ways the word Dharma is used. 
in the text. So I'm going to kind of go through those one at a time. But first, uh, there is a text that I that I, I you've probably heard me read before. I read it all the time. It's my favorite text. It's Majima Nikaya 26, called the Noble Quest, or we could say the Noble Question. And the reason I like this text so much is it's the oldest, as far as we know, the oldest explanation that the Buddha gives. And in many ways, the only explanation that he gives of what this Dharma is. Um, and he says, I considered. It's also one of the few texts where he's actually not in dialogue with somebody else. He's actually kind of talking to himself. He says, I considered. This Dhamma I have reached is deep, difficult to awaken to, quiet, still, and excellent. And excellent. Not confined by thought or attained through reason. Subtle, hard to see, painful to see. Felt and experienced by those who are wise, by those who are willing. And I've torn this thing apart a million times in looking at some of the poly terms. And I used to, when, when he said, I added painful to see because I think it's more accurate. When, when he said the Dharma is hard to see, I used to think that it meant you had to like be like a super good meditator. And like if you could get good concentration and good insight, you could like see the Dharma. Like I always thought that for years and years and years. I always thought this Dharma was this thing that was going to like, I was going to see it and to have some profound change, which I actually already had, obviously. I didn't quite get it. So you do stumble through this stuff a lot. So if you're stumbling through some of this stuff, it's to be expected. But he's really saying that it's painful to see. That, and it really what it is, it's, it's, it's really what encompasses dukkha or this existential situation that we find ourselves in, birth, old age, sickness, and death. And so I think much of the Dharma endeavor is, is actually a philosophical and an existential plight. What do you want to do with this thing? Right? And, and maybe you're getting haunted by questions like that while you're here, right? And, you know, what, what, what do I want to do with this life? What is this life for? And again, like the Buddha, we oftentimes look around at the world we live in. I look at the world that I live in right now, and I don't see anything I want to mimic or replicate. Nothing. There's a couple of things I like, but but mostly the, the the dominant paradigm status quo of how one should live is very fraught with all kinds of complications. He goes on. So he's trying to say, as Cheryl said the other night, this task is what we, we're trying to, full, can we fully know, can we fully embrace the existential reality of this life? All of the pain, all of the, all of the minor keys. Someone mentioned that in group the other day. And I, I've used that before. Life has a minor key. But then he goes on to say, but those people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground. And that's where this place and ground comes from. Have you found yourself delighting and reveling in your place and your status and your, I'm going to be this kind of person and have these kinds of things? And, and so there's this way in which we are hypnotized into that. Uh, we were, we're, to some degree, we're fooled by the world. The world says, no, no, I got all this good stuff for you. Become this, do this, get that, have this. And so he, and this is 2,500 years ago, and there probably wasn't a whole lot of things to delight and revel in in ancient India. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the shit we have nowadays, the fact that anybody's even at Biocitos this week is mind-blowing. <laughs> I mean, at least there's 25 of us. Not great numbers, but we're doing the best we can. He says, it is hard for these people to see this ground, this conditionality, conditioned arising. So when he says ground, actually, interestingly enough, the word is tana for ground, which is the same as satipatthana. Oh. So when he's talking about the ground, and as he goes on in his teachings, he's really trying to 
get us to see these foundations of mindfulness, the teachings of Satipatthana, and, and really recognizing what you already actually totally know and that your life happens and unfolds one moment at a time. That's how it is. That's the ground. One moment at a time. And are you going to participate, cooperate in that fact? Or are you going to look beyond the moment into imagination, into fantasy, into what ifs and if onlys and gotta do's and shouldn't do's and how comes and if they... There's nowhere... That's not in the ground. That's, that's, uh, that's the other... Whatever that is. So, you know, and I know how hard it is. Have you noticed how hard it is to be in the ground? <laughs> the breath, the body, the rain, the cold, the whatever it is. Something's hard about that. It's painful about that. But, that. but that's what's happening. That's how it is. That's where you are. You can't get out anyway. You are stuck in this moment for eternity. <laughs> Welcome to the Dharmaverse. This is always changing. It's always changing, yeah. Just pay attention, you'll never get bored. And then he goes on to say, hard to see this ground and also hard to see the stilling of all inclinations, the fading away of craving." The relinquishing of views, desirelessness, stopping, Nibbana. So when we let go of that, when we do no longer delighting and reveling in the place, what arrives in the moments after that is a seeing of, of, of what it's like to not be in that. And like I said, as I said earlier, even though you might not be fully awake, there's a gravitational pull towards awakening that now might become the most significant force in your mind. Right. So there's almost, it's almost like a moment-to-moment negotiation, like, where do you want to go? You know? You know? It's always trying to steer us back. And, and with practice, momentum over time, and there's a lot of qualities that help us see the ground. Faith, of course, is the big one. You know? And then he goes on to say, were I to teach the Dhamma and others would not understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. Why should I now reveal what I reach with difficulty? This Dhamma is not easily awoken to to those enthralled by greed and hate. Those blinded by desires, coveted by a mass of darkness, will not see what goes against the stream. Subtle, deep, hard to see, and fine. On thinking this over, monks, my mind inclined towards inaction to not teaching the Dharma. The Buddha's walking around going like, nobody is going to want to do this. <laughs> and I want to I read this poem again that I read the other day because a couple people had asked me to. On solitude. And so part of solitude, part of living in the Dharma, part of our practice is really to try to create a home, an internal environment, an internal experience that becomes preferable than chasing after whatever it is that you like to chase after. And so that's why we we, we build the foundations of mindfulness. We, we, We value this quality of awareness. We try to bring in a sense of kindness, of generosity, so that way... We, we're building out ground zero, man. That's where you live. Right. Inhabit this. Renovate this. This is on solitude from the Suttinipata. The practitioner concealed inside their cell, a person sunk into dark passions, is a very, very long way from solitude. Hard to be free from all the wants that split off from the thrill of being alive. Longing for what is gone and for what will come to be. Hungry for these delights now, nobody can save you. Obsessed in a foolish pursuit of pleasure, embarking on a lonely, unbalanced life 
you cry out in anguish. What will become of me when I leave here? Be someone who practices right now. Don't be thrown off track for the sake of what you know already to be unbalanced. Life is too short. Declare the wisdom of this moment. And so when we think about this word, so I, I actually have no interest in Buddhism for, most, for the most part. Uh, I, 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 Buddhism is my friend. I think that's how I see Buddhism, my friend. But this Dharma thing, very different. I really feel like I have a, a religious relationship and, and feeling about this thing. And they're very, they're very different. And I'm very glad that early on I didn't have any of the trappings of, of the religion or the thought of Buddhism. It was, just, it was just like this very practice that I got introduced to. I didn't actually know for a while after. I didn't even know that Buddhism was part of the deal for probably quite a while. So in, in the most broad sense, Dharma means the teachings of the Buddha. So he didn't teach Buddhism. In fact, they didn't even call him the Buddha back in the day. They didn't start calling him the Buddha until many, many years later. He was Siddhartha Gautama, the Tathagata, the true person. And um, so all of what he taught, uh, the teachings of the Buddha, were, were his dharma. So he would always talk about the Buddha's dharma. The other way, another way that dharma is talked about, as I, as I just went through, is dharma, in many ways, dharma and nibbana are synonyms. So when he says this dhamma I reached, he's also saying this nibbana that I reached. And the thing about nibbana that's nice is that it's considered to be a datu or a natural property of the universe, which is why I suspect Cheryl's so keen on the natural awareness because she's very keen on there being a quality of experience that's always there. Right? I like that. The dharma is always there. Nibbana is always there. I was on retreat with a with a probably the most amazing human being I've ever sat in front of. His name is Ajahn Sachito. He's a Theravada monk, and I sat with him a couple times. But I sat with him one time for a month, and we were, we were he would meet for we'd meet with him for like an hour every once in a while. And he was like he was a little bit scary. He's like this big, big, tall English guy. He like shaves his eyebrows too. He's got this big mouth full of crooked teeth. <laughs> And it's like really wet, wet English accent. He looks like he could be like a gangster in a guy Ritchie. You know, but he's got the robes on. You're like, okay, I don't think he's going to hurt me. <laughs> and we were just talking about all this stuff, about Dukkha and Nibbana, and we're talking about the Dharma. And he'd like, he would like lean in and look right at me. He'd be like, it's right under your nose. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like... He like he's right here all the time. He was so serious about it. I'm like, yeah, dude, fuck yeah. Man. <laughs> this guy is tripping. But it was so. It was just to be in the presence of somebody like that. I I don't think I've ever practiced with as much diligence as I've done when I was with him. Right, and there is this, there, 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 there is this idea. I think that we could maybe consider or recognize that this Nibbanic property, I'll, I'll speak about it more and Chris will also reflect on it in days to come. But there, there, there is a, there, there, there's almost like, it's almost like there's a frequency in the universe. Right? There's like a psychological frequency in the universe. If we do these little dharmic, you know, gymnastics with our mind, you get it. You probably have, you had moments where you're like, hey man, not so bad. It's not so bad in here. Right? It's almost like I think about Nibbana as like a, an AM radio station. Like you remember back in the day when you'd drive around in your car, you had to actually keep your hand on the dial and you'd be turning it back and forth a little bit to kind of make sure the song comes in tune. It's kind of like that. It's not Spotify. It's like AM staticky radio that you've got to keep your hand on the dial the whole time. Or you take your hand on the dial. <laughs> also known as thinking. <laughs> the white noise of experience. <laughs> so in many ways, it's a, it's a non-reactive awareness. Uh, and also in many ways, it's just uh, an ability to be, to be in cooperation and to be in harmony with the conditions of your experience. Uh, 
I know it's so easy to sit here and say, <laughs> but that's really what it's after. It's always trying to bring us back, always trying to bring us back. And, and this idea that, and, and this actually I think comforts me most of my life, is that the idea that this, this is always here. You know, the Dharma is infinitely forgiving. Infinitely forgiving. You can be sitting here, you can go, you can travel to all the places, do all the things for 27, 30 minutes, three hours, all day long. And when you're back, you're back. Right back, right here, right now, this moment, this sound, this breath, back. Infinitely forgiving. Right. Something about that I find that to be very comforting. Right. And, and so, so part of that is that as we live our lives, like, can you remember that? You know, I forget it all the time. I'm like, oh yeah, that darn thing. Maybe I'll do that right now. <laughs> Rather than what I am doing. Right? And it's like you start to learn how to return back to this and it's like, it's so resourceful. It's so comforting. Right? And, you, and, and these retreats are so good for you get these long, unpacked days of it where it's like you just get to the point where you become convinced and you do, you get that gravitational pull. You're like, this is better. This is better than everything. This is, this is the way to be. So they get a little more complicated as we go. So Dharma, Nibbana, also Dharma can be described as a law or order, a law or order to things. Cheryl likes to use this word I like, the design of things. What, are the, what is the, the design of things? In also many ways we would say nature. Dharma is about nature. So things have a nature to them. The mind is, is, has a nature to it. I mean, the mind was actually created by the planet. If you really follow that logic, I mean, we, are, we, we were, the, the planet did give birth to us, right? So there is this uh, natural ability. And I think one of the things that's interesting is one of the ways to think about how the Buddha might have come up with this brilliance, precision, uh, kind of spiritual technology that he's kind of opened up to is he grew up in a world he would have been very aware of the idea of seed and fruit and as an agricultural community he would have been very aware of that reality that they're seeds you put them in the ground and what do they call it when you turn a seed to a fruit they call it cultivation and that's the word he used for meditation he didn't use the word meditate I'm not a fan of that word I'm happy to get rid of it uh Mabhavana, cultivate. He's always talking metabhavana, cultivating kindness. It's all about cultivating these qualities because they're already here. They're part of, they're part of your nat- nature. Right? So dharma as nature. And, and there are certain conditions, there are certain things we can do. As you've seen, there are certain things we can kind of do with our mental faculties to inspire or to coax or to cultivate these qualities to, as Cheryl would say, to reveal themselves to you. But there's a lot of crap in the way, right? And that's, that, that's really, you know, there's a lot of dirt to be shoveled. There's like buckets of water to carry. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to, we, we live in Paonia, we, 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 have, we grow some fruit trees and have some gardens and stuff. And man, it is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I see why people chuck the $5 apple in the basket at Whole Foods. <laughs> you know how long it takes for an apple seed to actually be an apple? It's like a six year deal. Go buy the five dollar Whole Foods apple. Eat it right now. <laughs> same, same. You know, we don't want to do the work. It's hard work. So I think what he's after is he's trying to make a play to say that the and there's a lot of work on this. We're doing some work, me and my wife, on secular dharma, but there's also another aspect of it that Gil Fransdale and some other teachers are doing called naturalistic dharma, where it's this idea where the Buddha's like, he's looking at how things operate in the natural world, and he's applying basically that theory to the inner life. He's like, well, if it happens out there, it probably happens in here too. Why not? That just makes a lot of sense. That the mind can be cultivated. The mind can be grown. It can be... You know, sometimes I think that a lot of times, and I know I feel this way, that my mind is like this kind of janky contraption somewhere back in my head that's just kind of a, this thing i got to put up with. You ever feel that way? Stupid mind. 
That's one of my favorite retreat labels. Stupid mind. <laughs> Stupid mind. All your bad ideas. <laughs> Insults. Thank you. I, I didn't feel bad enough already. <laughs> my mind comes in with new and interesting creative insults for me. It's not like that. You know, it, it's, it's neuroplastic, as they say. They get a little more complicated, a little more technical, but I'll go through them with you. Another way that Dharma is used, and this becomes more like Abhidharma or like meditation, moment by moment, is a truly real event. Is a Dharma. Like sitting out here, watching the rain come down, watching the, the water drop, splash on the pond, watching the rain. So it's a truly real event. It's happening right now. So, the, so again, the Dharma, that's the sense of the Dharma is only a, a right now thing. It's a truly real event. Your life is a truly real event that happens one moment at a time. And so when we, we practice the Dharma, we're practicing being in a truly, really event, moment by moment by moment, trying to acclimate, trying to cultivate, trying to establish a more a kind, friendly, harmonious relationship to those conditions. To get even more specific, and this is where they really, this is where the analysis of the mind becomes fascinating. And one thing that, that blows my mind, even though I, I, I don't fancy myself a highly educated person by any stretch, but when you start to look at Buddhist psychology and you start to look at the way that things are broken down, the, the taxonomy of terms they use for mental events and just the sophistication and the insane precision far more advanced and sophisticated than any of the psychological understandings we have today. It's, it's, it's just fascinating to me. And they didn't even, it's not like he was able to like clock this stuff and put it in his like word doc. They didn't even have written word. They had to remember all this stuff. And the fact that somebody remembered all this stuff and was able to get it down, written down 500 years later, and we get to have it today, it's, it's just unbelievably fascinating to me. And so here, a dharma can be a mental percept, which is an image, a memory, an object. So when Cheryl uses the word the objects, another way to say those are dharmas. The dharma of sound, the dharma of a judgment, the dharma of a feeling. It's actually technically the smallest unit of discernible experience. What is this? This is anger. What is that like? This is, this is taste. What is this like? This is a memory. What is this memory? What's the images and visuals? And so like really like when you start to get more concentrated as you are in these days, you start to see like the mind as sort of a mental event and you start to recognize these dharmas. Or another way to say it is thing. What is this thing? Cheryl and I and Chris actually were talking earlier about this uh, there's a Zen practice, Stephen Pastor talks about in his books that he did for like seven years. In uh, South Korea, there's a Soto, I don't think it's Soto Zen. It's a Korean Zen monastery, and all they do, the whole practice, is you just repeat the mantra, what is this? What is this? Every day for three months, three months off. Every, so there's two three-month retreats a year, and that's the whole practice, and you just, it's, it, it's really kind of, I think, in many ways, trying to get us to live more in the question. And I think actually that's a lot of, we use the word investigation, we use the word inquiry, we use the word curiosity. Those are all really kind of meant to shift us more into a, a mode of questioning rather than answer having. Right? And we live in a world of answer having. Answers aren't that actually helpful, I find out. Like, you know, we have all the answers to all the wrong questions. And so it's really the Dharma in many ways is it's this questioning what is this? What's going on? How am I relating to this? Why do I believe what my mind is telling me about this moment? Okay. I don't know why, actually. Let's have a look. So it can be really an image, a memory, a mental percept. And really what it is, it's that which is perceived by the senses. Smell, taste, sight, sound, color, thought. 
So a thought is just is just a mental object, a mental event, a thing. So we can really kind of get talk about existentialism. I mean, it's like radical existential phenomenology of just really sitting and observing, like what is really going on. Right? And then the more the more interested we become in that, the more we pull us back into the ground. We pull us back into the ground. Because I feel like I'm haunted by this almost like 60s reggae slap delay all the time. Or like, <laughs> you know, that, you know, you know that slap back delay? And it's, like, and it's like, there's the life that I'm having right now. And then somewhere right about here is the life I could be having if only. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? That's better than... It's like it almost haunts us as we walk around, right? It's like, what is that? Right? That kind of sense. And we can recognize that. We can really kind of say, no, 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 this is actually, this is the way to be. And so it's just really like, don't underestimate the value of that. And, and don't underestimate where that's going to take you. Like, you know, you have no idea. When you start to live from this perspective, Things just change. You don't know how they change, when they're going to change. It's just, but again, it's like, it's it, it's a it's a trusting and it's a bit of a surrender, I think, because one thing I can say about the Dharma is I feel like the thing about it that's so challenging is I'm sort of being asked to practice something that I'm actually never fully going to understand. Mm-hmm. I don't think you get to understand how this works. I think that's like. Not really, I don't think it goes that far. Right? And, and also, this is the other thing. You don't have to understand it for it to be working. Right? We had this, I had this retreat a couple weeks ago. It was a retreat I did in California for some of my students. And I had to open up the registration to, to the general public because I didn't have enough of people. And this woman showed up. Uh, this like 63-year-old like Latina woman from L.A. who was like a Sunday school teacher and a member of Al-Anon. And I actually had to email and be like, hey, you know like what we're doing on this retreat, right? Like, you're welcome to come, but I just want to make sure. She's like, no, no, I really, really want to do it. And it was like, she had the most, she had, <laughs> she had the most transformative experience of anybody there. She had no idea what any of this stuff was. She like kind of heard about mindfulness and thought maybe it was a good idea. That was about as much as she knew. And she kept, really, she practiced, and she, like, her heart was really, really opening, and she was sharing with everybody. And then she kept saying during groups that she was enlightened, which was awesome. I was, no way was I going to have the heart to tell her that she had no <laughs> She kept saying things like, well, now that I'm enlightened, it's like, <laughs> and then she would ask me questions about good and evil, and I'd be like, you know what, I think God would be really happy with what's going on here. He's like, she's like, that's right, he would be very happy with this. I'm like, see? <laughs> Like, so you don't have to like it's again it's not about knowing a piece of data that you don't have now and I know how seductive that is and I get trapped into it all the time but again it's a kind of knowing how and knowing that and so lastly the other way that Dharma is described is as um, right behavior Ethics, integrity, uh, sila. It's one of the dimensions. So, so dharma perspective, dharma practice, is it, what sits at, really actually sits at the bottom of the whole project is uh, cultivating non-harm, cultivating goodness, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. Really this trying to... So there is this, there is this huge recognition in the tradition that really sits at the bottom of the practice. And, and I think most people end up here because at some point, maybe there's a, there's a turning point in our life where we realize, you know what, I, I actually want to be, I want to be a good person. I want to I wanna create positive change in the world. I want to, you know, I, you know, you look around at what's going on and it's just like, man, sometimes I'm like, is anybody even trying to be good? Like, I try and fail, but sometimes I'm like, man, are there anybody, everybody's just like trying to be shitty and short and impatient and blaming. Like, you know, it makes me so sad to see. So it's about this kind of 
and it, and it really starts in, on the internal experience. It really, you know, a lot of times people think that being good or having integrity is about how we relate to others, which certainly it is. But I think for, for first and foremost, for most of us, we have to change the ways that we relate to ourselves. You know, how do you relate to yourself? What 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 what's it like in the privacy of your own mind? <laughs> If I could go up to my truck and get the helmet and put, put it on your head so everybody could hear your thoughts, <laughs> would anybody volunteer to wear it tomorrow? <laughs> Any takers? Right. Right. So that's, that's really where that, that's part of it. It's like, yes, we cultivate this awareness, and yes, we cultivate this insight, but we really want to tap into our innate sense of goodness, harmlessness, kindness, these, all, these, all these beautiful qualities that we hear about, which are classified in Buddhist psychology as beautiful Mind states, beautiful mental factors, sabanas. And so it's really like cultivating a beautiful mind, beautiful behavior, beautiful mind, beautiful way of thinking, beautiful way of being. So it's really trying to develop this faith, this courage, this awareness, this kind of uh, courageous commitment, you know, to really uh, practice with this Dharma. And, and, and it's, it, it's not, uh, however you understand it and however you relate to it and however you practice it, it's actually also very deeply personal, I think. I know it is for me. So we, we also want to we want to protect that too. We we want to be defenders of the Dharma. We'll talk about this more as the days go on. But like you know, being careful, you know, how many people you tell about your retreat, <laughs> you know. And so it's really like you know, and, and it's also considered to be such a, such a blessing, uh, good fortune, to have lived uh, in this life, to have lived in this human body, and have actually been not just introduced to the Dharma, but to have understood it enough to say, oh, actually, I like this. I think I'm going to give this a shot. You know, what, and, and it goes back to when the Buddha said, I, I, you know, he, he became fully awake, he awoke into this Dharma, to this Nibbanic experience, and he surveys the world, and he goes, yeah, man, nobody's going to do this. <laughs> not going down. Right, and and he and he his mind inclined towards inaction, but then he actually went on to say, uh, this word, the, the actual, the, the more popular, the more common word for compassion, is anukampa, which means the crying out at the crying out of another. And the Buddha saw how much people suffered, and he saw how hard, much of a hard time they had, and out of compassion for them, he said, well, some people, some people will get this. In each generation, he says, there will be a handful of people who have a little dust in their eyes. Those who have a little dust in their eyes will see this dharma, will understand this dharma, will see the value of our humanity and will cultivate this practice. Pretty good, 2,500-year run. Not bad. You know, again, only 25 people here in the tent tonight. <laughs> the numbers aren't there yet, but we can try. And so the last thing that I'll say, one of the ways to, to think about the Dharma, one of the ways that I like to think about it, is the Dharma is really just a map. And uh, maps are helpful. But the map, like all maps, is only as useful as your ability to use the map to navigate the territory of your life. So we don't worship the map, we don't worship the Dharma, we don't, we don't have a religious kind of, you know, that's the truth. We don't have that kind of thing. But we, we say, like, this, this is a pretty good map. And so we use the map. So, so how, how you practice the Dharma, what teachings make sense, which teachings don't make sense, all, it's all very personal and it's all very yours. Right? So use these maps, but just remember the territory you know, you're, you, we all have very unique, very specific, very particular kinds of territory. Even language is deeply personal. Right? So it's important to kind of 
capture, reflect on, and lock down the stuff that you learn here that you do understand that does make sense, rather than worrying about the stuff that doesn't. Right? And you'll, you'll start to gather your little dharma crumbs, you know, the little trail of breadcrumbs that's been left behind us to follow. You know, we start to get our own. And we say, and this is where the Buddha says, ehi pasako, come and see for yourself. Everybody's path is different. He actually says in the text many times, may no two of you follow the same path. May no two of you follow the same path because no two of you have the same conditions. Right? So we can share the map. We can talk about the map. That's why we're here. We, 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 we've used the map with varying degrees of success. And so we all can use this kind of a, as a way to find ourselves around this dharma, this present moment experience, this life, this mind, this heart. What's it, what's it like in here? Can I find my way around? Right? There's not a map for the place. There's only a map for the ground. So this deep, courageous commitment to to attempt to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to actually see if I can live my life one moment at a time. Yeah. And that's hard in this day of being a non-monastic. I, I really try to do this. I'm very grateful. I feel very lucky. I don't have another job. I'm actually, this is my office on Monday night right now. <laughs> I'm actually at work. <laughs> and, I, and I feel so grateful that I get to do that. But I try to live my life one moment at a time in the face of children, in the face of COVID, in the face of taxes, in the face of passwords to bank accounts, in the face of mortgage payments, in the face of all of the external demands that I live in. It's like, you can, you, you, we can practice with those. Right? The world is not a hindrance to your practice. It's part of our practice. So I offer this for your reflection. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit for a minute or so.